Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Second Kings 17. Uh, we are picking back up. Last week was the last, just a, a, a horrible list of kings for the northern kingdom as they are coming near their end, and tonight we will end them. Uh, in the twelfth year of Ahaz, the king of Judah, Hoshea, the son of Elah, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned nine years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute money. And the king of Assyria uncovered a conspiracy by Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and brought no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison." So this is the end of any semblance of northern kingdom sovereignty. They've lost their ability to rule themselves. Remember, at this point, it has shrunk to a, like a like a city state almost. Samaria and about thirty yard thirty miles around it is all that's left of the northern kingdom. Um, so uh, we get this last king, if you can even call him a king. He's a king only because Assyria has approved him. At this point, with Assyrian practices in the ancient world, they would have already had advisors in the courts of every city in this place. They move in very slowly, and they take those positions. So it says he did evil, but not as his other kings did. It's a really weird thing. We've seen a lot of he did evil like their fathers, or evil like Jeroboam, or evil like Ahab. But what we get with Hosea is kind of a lukewarm king. He's evil, but he's not as evil as the other kings. So it's interesting, and I think this is interesting, as judgment comes for northern Israel, it's not during their worst, most evil days. Like, they've actually come back a little bit, and God's still going to bring the judgment because they didn't come all the way back. So you get Shalmaneser, um, Assyrian records show this king. When you look at the Assyrian records, Israel's a pawn to them. They really see Israel as just uh, a very small little vassal state that doesn't even have particularly good prophets. They got much more money coming up from the Fertile Crescent, from the Babylonian regions. So this is really a region just to get them out from under their shoe. Um, so the tribute money was good, but when that stops coming in, uh, the conspiracy by Hosea is let's go to Egypt and try to get support. If he would have gone to the Lord God Almighty for support, we might be reading a different history. But he doesn't. He goes to Egypt, and then he gets shut up. I don't know what shutting him up means, and the Hebrew doesn't give us a lot of guidance on that, but we basically have this king saying that the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Those are two different things. So I don't know if that means that he got his tongue cut out or something like that. Very realistic in that part of the world. But they bound him in prison, so there he goes. This is the end of the king. Verse 5. Now the king of Assyria went throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. So very defensible city. 
And in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Israel took Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria and placed them in Hala by the Habor, the river of Gozan, and the cities of Medes. So for DNA hunters, this is a pretty solid clue of what happened to the ten tribes. People call them the, the ten lost tribes. But really, the um, Reuben and Gad had already been taken away. So what we're talking about is the eight remaining tribes in the northern kingdom. And they're essentially erasing them, but they give us the towns to which they were sent. So if you go, those people would have been inbred. For three years, Shalmaneser loses the throne during these three years, and Sargon II takes over. That tells us something about Assyria as a kingdom. They were able to transfer power and not even stop a siege on a city. Much more bureaucratic, much more elaborate government structure, um, and they are able to endure these kinds of conquest things, and the king really isn't the center of Assyrian life in that sense. So God allows this destruction. His help wasn't wanted by the northern kingdom, and like a nice gentleman, the Lord doesn't give his help. They haven't called on his name, they haven't sought him out, and he's basically taken his blessing and moved away. It says Israel was carried away. We've talked about this before. Syrian practice, they were an expansionistic empire, but this is how they did expansion. They would conquer a new territory, take the people out of those cities, and move them to the other side of the empire and drop them in new cities where they would be kind of blended into the culture. Then they would take people from this side of conquest and transplant them and repopulate the cities they just took. So we're going to see that that happens. The carrying away, that's what they mean. Um, obviously, they didn't have airlifts for these people. They would take large ropes that had hooks, and they would put the hooks through their nose or their upper lip, and they would be moved miles and miles of hiking. Most people died on these trips, and the Assyrians didn't care. It got rid of rebellion, and it got rid of the people because they were trying to erase the culture. That's what was important to them. The ones that survived were the good workers that they could put to work in other parts of their empire. Their goal was, after one generation, people saw themselves as Assyrian. So they were kind of the first melting pot empire, and they existed that way and they looked that way. After 200 years in the northern kingdom, we've seen 19 kings in the northern kingdom. All of them ignored God's law, and all of them ignored God's will. They didn't worship the way they should, all the way back to Jeroboam, and they had warning after warning after warning before this would happen. You could say God's a harsh God by judging the northern kingdom, but they haven't done anything right. God made a covenant with them, and they, were, they broke their covenant. Amos told them judgment was going to come just like God promised. Amos was one of the prophets from the group of the sons of prophets. He says this, Amos 4.2, The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that the days shall come upon you that he will take you away with hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. So he prophesied that well before it happened, well before they necessarily knew Assyria was going to take them. So either Amos knew about that practice ahead of time, but they were warned this would happen. And so the cruelty of the Assyrians is part of what God's allowing to happen. It means that the Assyrians parading them 100 miles from their town was partially humiliating, not just cruel. But it was to bring them low and to humble them. Uh, if you look at Sargon II's reports in the Assyrian Empire, this is what he says. I clashed with them, Israel, and took, and took as booty 27,280 people with their chariots and their gods in whom they trusted. And first of all, that the Assyrians are saying the Israelites had gods, plural, 
says something about the Israelites. They did not look distinct from other empires at this time. They were polytheistic in that sense. I incorporated 200 chariots into my army and the rest of the people I made to dwell within Assyria. He took the chariots because they weren't damaged in battle because they sieged Samaria. So the fact that he took away 27,000 people says that the northern kingdom has shrunk amazingly. They used to wield six-figure armies. Now they've got 27,000 people that are healthy enough to be hauled off. So Sargon II's records match the Bible perfectly here. Um, we see Sargon II is, is um, this is, it's called, if you want to read it, it's called the Prisms of Sargon and the Nimrud, and you can read that passage. So this is what happened in the Northern Kingdom. The writers stop now in the Book of Kings, and they stop for, and for this chapter, they kind of explain why this happened. And really, if you think of Kings like a thesis paper, We've gone through every one of these kings showing if they followed the Lord or didn't follow the Lord. And when you make a conclusion in a good research paper, everything has built to that. So there shouldn't be any surprises as to why God did this. But they're summing it all up in one big statement. Um, and they recount the results of the, this experiment of the northern kingdom. And you note things that happen as you go along. So when you get here, there's no new information. So then you're like, well, Dickers, then we can do five chapters tonight and burn through it. But I think this is the whole point of the book. So I'm, we're going to stop on this chapter and just absorb it a little tonight. Uh, when, you, when you get into here, that you see this giant summary of all of First and Second Kings in one chapter. They just bring it all into one package. So, verse 7. For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And the central issue here is spiritual. Note, note that in verse 7, it's clearly a spiritual issue. This isn't a political thing. It isn't a military thing. It's not a civic thing. It was their hearts that got them in trouble. And he brought them up. This should have inspired them uh, because God did bring them out of Egypt. That should have, the natural result of that spiritually should have been thankfulness, appreciation, worship. It didn't do that. Um, for the foolish person, the fear outweighs the love. And so verse 7 is essentially a disregard for God. They had other gods before him. They broke the first commandment. And they had feared other gods and had walked in the statutes of the nation, which the Lord had cast out from before them, before the children of Israel and the kings of Israel, which they had made. So they looked a little too much like the world. They started to worship the same gods that God had decided the Canaanites are going to get kicked out because of them. They compromise themselves. That becomes the second major thing they do wrong. In allowing the strange gods to inspire fear, they put those gods before God. The Lord had cast them out. He consistently casts out the northern kingdom. To be fair, if he cast out the Canaanites for these nasty little gods, and then the Israelites start worshiping the same nasty little gods, he would be the Canaanites would be able to get to the judgment throne and say, you treated your people differently than us. So if he doesn't cast them out, he's actually being unjust. And allowing these gods there, God then gives them warning. Same sin, same punishment. Verse 11 kind of says that too. Verse 9. Also the children of Israel secretly did against the Lord their God things that were not right. And they built for themselves high places in all their cities from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill and on under, under every green tree. 
There they burned incense on all the high places like the nations whom the Lord had carried away before them. And they did wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this thing. That's paraphrasing for they broke the second commandment too. They started to worship idols. So they're disregarding God. They're compromising with the world that they were entering into. And then three, they're in flat out rebellion against God. This is making the case that what God did here was very just. The carved images then become a thing they secretly did against. As this is a public record, I think this is kind of an issue. They think they're doing things in secret, but this actually made it into the Bible. So they couldn't have been that secret because they actually got published. <laughs> so spiritually speaking, a lot of times we deceive ourselves and we think we're doing things in secret when God sees everything we do. Don't deceive yourself. Don't fool yourself. God sees what's going on. There's no such thing as a secret sin. It's just sin that you're getting away with for the temporary. And the northern kingdom got away with these things, or they thought they got away with these things, until judgment actually arrived. And surprise, surprise, God actually could see everything they were doing. He might have waited for the judgment, but God does judge. And it is coming. God doesn't tolerate human wickedness and evil, even when we think we're doing it in secret. There's an end to that. If there's secret evil going on, that should be terrifying. If you've gotten that stuff worked out of your life, that should be like, whew, good, relieving. God's forgiven me and God's helping me get past some of those things. God never abandoned them to sin. He gave them warning after warning after warning. Close calls. He was consistent and he empowered these things with miracles. So some warnings were natural. They had famines, drought, and Elisha and Elijah came and explained to them that those things were God's warnings. So they were natural things. Some of the warnings were political. They had political chaos. They had bad kings. They had young kings. They had foreign conquests take their land. And they had prophets telling them all of these things are because you've abandoned the Lord God, the Lord your God. And then they had some warnings that were from God's faithful prophets that were directly there. Uh, godly men like Naboth holding his ground and not selling off his land. And then that, that became a curse to Ahab. Sons of the prophets showed up. They, <laughs> the remnants of the people serving God hanging on and being blessed. And we're going to note when we get to Hezekiah here in a couple chapters that he invited people from the northern kingdoms to come celebrate in Jerusalem. And there was a remnant of people that made the trip. And they came and faithfully worshipped in Jerusalem where they were told to do it from the beginning of time. It says, God told them to turn from their evil ways. There wasn't a debate about what was evil. Like, we all know what's right and what's wrong. That's not the debate. The debate is if we can do it or not. And if God, God has a patience for that. But it's been established by God what's right and wrong. And if you're not sure what's right and wrong, we can go through that and find it in the word. Like morally speaking, God's very comprehensive. There's an invitation to live holy instead of living reprobate to what God's called us to. So they become even more stubborn. They get all these warnings and instead of turning, they just double down on what they're doing. And, and at some point, they become dull to the prophets. They don't even hear what the prophets are saying. At some point, if you're not hearing God's word, you just forget that it's out there. But God hasn't forgotten. This is what I worry about with America. It's almost like America's tried to purge biblical discussion from the dialogue, from the discourse. And there's a remnant of people holding on to it. But from the mass public discourse, we got a number of people in this country, they've just forgotten that there's a Bible. They've forgotten that God of the universe has told us how to live. 
And this is where the northern kingdom, kingdom was. They didn't turn from their evil ways because they barely even understood they were evil anymore. So verse 7, disregard for God. Verse 8, they compromise with the world. Verse 9 through 12, they actually do evil things. Verse 13, they ignore the love that God gave to them. And in all of these things, like the writers building the case, this is why they lost their kingdom. This is why they lost their land. Verse 14, nevertheless, they would not hear, but stiffened their necks like the necks of their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. Amazing. God brought them out of Egypt, brought them out of nothing, and they still don't believe that this is a God that has power in their life. The stiffening of the neck is an image of oxen. Uh, frankly, all animals that are domesticated that you might use for work, there are animals that willfully bow their heads so you can put them to work. And then there are animals that stiffen their neck. And when an oxen stiffens its neck, you can't work with it. You can try to train it and coach it. And over time, most people that work with animals know, boy, if that animal just won't work with humans, they tend to go to the glue factory. And that's just what you do with animals that don't work with it. Well, God's waited 200 years for these humans to be willing to do the work he's called them to do on the planet. Refusing to do it, there's a point where it's like, okay, I'm done with you. And that's, so that image of stiffening a neck is an image where ultimately a farmer that's unable to train or coax the oxen, that oxen is useless. The only usefulness that oxen has is if it will bow to the work that God has for it or the owner has for it. So Israel had a purpose. They were supposed to be a light for people to see. And if, in not shining their light, they don't have worth in God's eyes anymore. They're, they're purposeless because of their stiff necks. Verse 15. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and his testimonies which he had testified against them. That's the prophets. And they followed idols. They became idolaters. And they went after nations who were all around them concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. Don't be like the world. But then they go and do it anyways. Why? What's so appealing about that? It says his covenant. That means essentially God kept his covenant, but they broke theirs. In breaking their covenant, it means they gave their word in the name of the Lord, and then they broke it. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. Commandment number three that gets busted. So they're breaking the commandments God gave to them, and one by one, the writer's showing us each of these infractions. Deuteronomy 5.11, you shall not take the Lord's name your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Don't make a covenant with the Lord and then think nothing of it. Like if you have a non-believing friend and they're thinking about, don't just try to rush them into committing their life to the Lord. Make them think about it. No, this is a serious decision. Don't do it on a whim. Do it because you're going to make a lifetime covenant to the Lord and, and be serious about what you're doing. Once you take up that name of the Lord, you raise his banner, then you're obligated to it. You've given yourself to it. They followed idols. They became idolaters. In the Hebrew, this is great. I'm going to just read this in the Hebrew. My pronunciation's horrible. I get that. Yalak ahar, hebel habar ahar. Or ahar, hebel, hebel, ahar. Same root word in the two words. So it, literally speaking, the yalak is to follow, but ahar is like the end of something or the hind part of something. You could throw in a choice word there if you want to. And then the hebel hebel is vapor or vapors. Slightly different pronunciations, slightly different meanings. 
So if you want to put the hind end of something together with vapors, this is a really strong image that's painted here. And I don't know how your Bible translates it, um, but Hebel, <laughs> the vapor being vain, it's that <laughs> you've got the, the end of vapor and then you become the vapor of the end. And it's just a kind of a mirrored word phrase that's there. In other words, they followed after emptiness and they became empty. They followed after the vapors of a hind end and they became the vapors of a hind end. And that's how God perceived them. I hope Steph's proud of how I diplomatically put all that. <laughs> the end of following vapors is you become a vapor that follows the Gentiles. And that's the end of this, the, 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 the coy that's there. That they're just going after Gentiles and there's nothing to it. Hosea 13.3. Hosea is another one of the prophets that spoke to the northern kingdom. One of the warnings that God sent. Therefore, they will disappear like the morning mist. They'll be like a vapor. Like dew in the morning, sun, like chaff blown by the wind, like smoke from a chimney. Honestly, this idea of this is what's going to happen, when we read this passage, they followed idols and became idolaters, it's a fulfillment of the Hosea prophecy. They became vapor. So this is why we kind of call them the lost tribes of Israel. We don't really know what happened to them. They got dissolved. They got picked up, moved, and we don't know what happens to them. God tells us not to follow the vanities of this world. The word vanity in the Hebrew has the same root word. It means emptiness. It tells us not to follow emptiness, but to be firm, resolute, courageous, and strong. They did none of this. So the case continues to build. Ephesians 4.14, then we will no longer be like immature children. We won't be tossed about and blown about by every wind or vapor of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they almost sound like the truth. What was the one we heard today? Did you know the Bible has 20 missing books in it? Vapor. It just is vapor. And it's all over the place that you get these winds blowing through the conversation. Even worse, with divided loyalties, they're unsettled people, James 1.6. They're not settled. So by following after the gods of the Canaanites, by, by compromising with that world that they're in, they become nothing. They don't have the backbone and the strength they wanted. Even worse, by ignoring God's warnings against this, they refuse to repent. They don't change their ways. This last king is like this lukewarm king, but he wasn't as evil as the other ones. I see that all over the place. Well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And if you compare yourself to the culture you're in, that's a bad measure. We have to compare ourselves against God's word, not against the culture we live in. I'm not so bad as so-and-so. That's like saying I'm, I'm not as tainted as cyanide, but you're still tainted, right? 2 Peter 2.17, these people are as useless as dried up springs or as mist blown away by the wind. Where do you think Peter got that image from? They're doomed to the blackest darkness. The, uh, the danger of living this compromised, lukewarm life, like an ox that won't pull a plow, you become absolutely useless and your life is meaningless. And for somebody that's lost in sin or living a lukewarm life, I hope that's a terrifying thought. It should be. And as a fellowship, like, we're just going to get into this and look at, like, this is judgment tonight, tonight in chapter 17. A Christian that doesn't serve their God is a pretty useless Christian. In fact, you've taken up his name in vain. 
So the question should be, how do I serve my God? Where are my opportunities to do things where I can bless people, where I can be encouraging to others, where I can be something meaningful in other people's lives? So they bowed down to do nothing and they became nothing. That's the end result of the Northern Kingdom. And I've said this before. You guys have heard me say this before. We're only as valuable as the being that we serve. If I serve an ant, I'm not particularly valuable to you. If I serve the Lord God Almighty, my value comes from who my master is, not from me internally. If I just serve myself, that's a pretty small, finite being to be serving. But if I serve God, I might actually do things that outlive me and have impact beyond my own life because God's using me as a tool in a larger purpose. If we serve finite things, we have finite worth and value. If we serve evil, we're very valuable to evil. But we, have, we advance evil's cause. We add our spirit to evil's cause. Good for evil. But if we serve the almighty, infinite creator God, we have added value to his purposes and his plan on this earth. We might even think, well, that's not that big of a deal, but even a little contribution to a, a massive plan has the value ascribed to it that that plan has to it. This is why we serve God. We want to serve something bigger than ourselves. One would think that the result of the northern kingdom, when given the chance to serve their king, would be to say thank you. That as he pulled them out of Egypt to start a new thing, they would have said, how can we adhere to that as close as possible? But instead, under Jeroboam, they try to make it easier for themselves. Well, I don't want to go that far into this whole following God thing. Then you get to verse 16. So they left all the commandments of the Lord their God made for themselves a molded image and two calves, made a wooden image and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire, that's Moloch. They practiced witchcraft, that's Ashtaroth, and soothsaying and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, to provoke him to anger. They went after all this other garbage. So the wrap up here is, <laughs> they named the big commandments and specifically say, but on this, in verse 16, they just sum them all. They broke all the commandments. They could care less about God's law. And we've seen it. You're like, well, what about murder? Well, we had, we've seen kings murdering each other all over the place. They provoke God to anger. Think of how preposterous that is for human beings to do things that provoke God to anger. Like, I hope we have a humble enough to heart to be like, oh, boy, I want to do, I, don't, I really don't want to tick off God. That's just a bad fight to pick. Like, think, I used to tell Grant, like, if you're going to get in a fight, like, think, does that guy have 30 pounds on you or not? Because if they got 30 pounds on you, in all ends, unless you know martial arts, you're going to lose that battle. God has a lot more than 30 pounds on us, right? And when we do things that anger God, that's a horrible fight to pick. And so that's what's going on here. To know God and, and to know his will and then defy it, that's worse than not even knowing what God's will is. Honestly, the Assyrians seem to be getting preferential treatment. At least they're not pretending to be God's people. So God allows them to move the Israelites out of the land because he won't have his name defiled anymore. 2 Peter 2, And when the people escape from the wickedness of the world by knowing the Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ, and then get tangled up and enslaved by sin again, they're worse off than before. You might as well have just stayed a non-Christian. It would be better if they had never known the way of righteousness than to know it and then reject the covenant, the command that they were given to live a holy life. They proved the truth of this proverb. A dog returns to its vomit, and another says a washed pig returns to the mud. 
If you're going to live for God, live for God. And if you're not, like, don't ruin it for the rest of us, right? We're trying to bring glory to God's name. So don't be a faker. They're not only useless in showing the world God's law, they actually do evil intentionally. They misrepresent God as ambassadors. That's their crime. This is why God won't continue to let them be. So here's the conclusion, verse 18. Therefore, all of that adds up to the conclusion. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel. That's the northern kingdom. And he removed them from his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah alone. Also, Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the statutes of Israel which they made. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel, affect, afflicted them, and delivered them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them from his sight. For he tore Israel from the house of David, and they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. Then Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin. For the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did, and they did not depart from him. Until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he said, by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away from their own land to Assyria, as it is to this day. It's almost like they're repeating what they're saying. When the Bible repeats itself, it's because they want us to hear the message. The writer notes in verse 19 that Judah's making all the same mistakes, but they remain for one reason and one reason alone. God promised a Messiah would come through that tribe. So it's the only tribe that Israel, Assyria doesn't take away. Think about it. That's actually kind of a miracle. The distance between Samaria and Jerusalem is like a day's walk. So the fact that Assyria hauls away the northern kingdom and takes all those cities, but they leave Jerusalem and the area of Judah, that's kind of miraculous. It's partially, I think, because the hill country of Jerusalem and the arid land south of it are kind of worthless, right? They didn't want Judah because Judah's not worth that much. But they leave it. They leave it in place and God protects them while these other tribes get taken away. They have a Here's the other thing. By the northern tribes being hauled away and evaporated like vapors, this is a huge warning to Judah who under Ahaz started to fall astray. So now they have this testimony of what happens when you don't obey the Lord and they have the northern kingdom to look at for that. You would think that makes a difference and it kind of does. We're going to next chapter, we're going to hit Hezekiah. They have a huge revival. Verse 20 shows a brief progression in which they never turn back to the Lord. Verse 21 is Jeroboam. Remember, he created a new priesthood, didn't have to be a Levite. He created two new temples, didn't have to go to Jerusalem. That's too far of a walk. He created carved images, well, because we like them and they're trendy. And then he had new feasts and new obligations. He ignored the calendar and the imagery of the feasts. They said they worshiped Yahweh, but they created innovations to the plan God laid out. And those, and that's the sin that's being talked about in these. It's not the Moloch worship that these verses are talking about. It's that they pretended to worship the true God, but they did it in a false way. So they're fakers. In Mark, we're reading about the fig tree with the fancy leaves and no fruit. They got fancy leaves, but they got no fruit. That's the crime. It's the reason Jesus withered the fig tree. It's the reason God let this go. And that stands as, if that stands as a warning to Judah, how much more does that stand as a warning to us? Because Judah gets hauled off to Babylon for the exact same crime. The temple and the Mosaic priesthood is ended under Jesus for the exact same crime. The belief that we can do Christianity our own way is a scarily deceptive belief. We have to do it God's way. It's not our ways, but his. 
And it says, as he said, God is patient. He sent warnings in love. God kept his covenant for 200 years, even though humans broke it over and over and over again. I can't wait to get to Hosea, which is this image of the prophet. God tells the prophet to marry a prostitute. So his marriage can be an image of the covenant between God and Israel, right? God keeps his promises, but the spouse won't keep hers. And the church is called the bride of Christ. Same imagery. What does it look like when Jesus has made a covenant with his church, but the church just does whatever they please? That's a dangerous self-deception to have. And it would not be unlike God to say, fine, no more church. Which I would miss because the food is great. Verse 23, the Lord removed Israel. The writer of Kings gives God the credit for the Assyrian invasion. That means that the hooks that were prophesied by Amos were part of what God allowed to happen to them. He humbled them, and then he evaporated them. We're promised the same thing. For those that live outside the law of Christ, they will be cast into outer darkness. And we don't like this topic of hell, but Jesus talks almost more about hell than he does about heaven. This is the consequence if we don't follow the Lord. So we should note that and, and I want to make this point because I was really looking for this. Tons of people in the northern kingdom got the heck out of there. Remember, we've had five kings in a row that were just chaos. During that time, the prophets start moving to the southern kingdom. This is interesting. And I think it's hopeful because as, as God people, we got to know that God takes care of us if we're wise. Second Chronicles 11 verse 13 talks about the priests and the Levites that were, all, that were in all of Israel resorted to him out of all their coasts. For all the Levites left their suburbs and their possessions, and they came to Judah and Jerusalem, for Jeroboam and his sons had cast them off from executing the priest's office unto the Lord. And then after them, out of all the tribes of Israel, such has set their hearts to seek out the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice unto the Lord God of their fathers. This is interesting. For 200 years, the people of God started moving. I don't know why it uses the word suburbs, like suburban area. They came from all over the countryside. First, the Levites that were no longer wanted, they went south to Judah, and after them followed godly people, one family after the other. Just on their own accord, the Spirit moved them out of these kingdoms and down to the southern kingdom. That means, if that's true, and I think God's word is true, if this idea that we're believers or people that want to serve God, look at the kings from Jeroboam on, especially Ahab. I'm thinking when Ahab was in office, tons of people started migrating to the southern kingdom. If you don't want us, we're gone. If you don't want Jesus' people around, we don't have to be there. And so that the time that it takes to look like this, these people, when they moved, it looked like great sacrifice because to move out of northern Israel means you're giving up your ancestral lands and you're letting them go uninhabited when you move to Jerusalem. When they move to Jerusalem, they move to Jerusalem because they don't have land in Judah, right? They're not allocated. From Joshua's time, they were allocated land. So they're giving up their claim to the land to move, and then they move into the city of Jerusalem. And so there's a gathering of God's people that come out of the northern kingdom. I believe the people God called to himself, he motivated them to get the heck out of there. We get an example of this when Elijah goes to the um, widow and says, you need to get out of here because there's going to be a drought, the prophets were telling people to move based on what God was telling them. So then, 
It says God gave them warning very directly. There's no obscure warnings here. God says it quite straightforward. Hosea 1.6, For I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. When God's prophets start saying things like that, do you want to be there when the fish hooks come, or do you want to be where God's moved you to? The other piece of evidence about this moving away of things is that we see that the prophets start coming up in the southern kingdom and start speaking to Judah. When Ahaz takes his sinful route and he starts moving Judah astray, there are prophets that pop up and prophesy against Ahaz, starting with Isaiah. So the, the sons of the prophets clearly seem to move during this time, but there's no clear record of when they move. God's people clearly are moving, Second Chronicles 11, and then the Levites took off way back during Jeroboam's time. So God's people, they're cleared out. And what's left is, let's just let Assyria clear these people out of here. So Israel was carried away from their own land. The best way to land outside of God's good grace is to ignore what he says in his word. Ignore what the prophets say. Ignore what the law says. See how that goes for you. And we get this example of this in the Old Testament. His servants, the prophets, or the sons of the prophets, um, have... have uh, are not given necessarily a location, but Amos, we know, is a prophet to Israel. And we know this. When Amos is prophesying to Israel, verse 1-1, Amos 1-1, he says this. The words of Amos, who is among the sheep breeders of Tekoa. He took a job with some sheep breeders, but where's Tekoa? If you look it up, Tekoa's in Judah. So even when the northern kingdom was getting Amos as a prophet, warning them of what was happening, he was prophesying from the southern kingdom and sending his messages north. So the fact that Elisha was still in that northern kingdom area, he might have been the last prophet to hang around in that area. We know Jonah took a trip, right? And he didn't stay in the northern kingdom. God sent him where? Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. So you start to see all this ties together and you're like, wait, didn't the Assyrians have like a subtle generational, you know, revival there where they served the Lord God Almighty for like a season? Clearly at this point, they're back to fish hooks. So they're not really, you know, you can see it didn't stick very long. But Jonah was not in the northern kingdom when he went off to do that ministry. How many other prophets were sent out of this area before the destruction came? Historically, if I, I have to piece all that together, but God has a record of keeping his people safe even during these times of judgment. And Jesus has promised his people again, when he comes back the second time to judge, you have nothing to fear. He'll come to claim his own before that happens. So even though it's a worldwide judgment, we can have faith in God that he's going to protect his people. If you love the Lord and you're seeking to follow in his path, you're not going to go through a lot of that nonsense. We might endure some tribulation and persecution, but we're not going to endure the wrath of God because he's not angry with his children. He protects his children. Does that make sense? I take great peace in that. And I don't have to worry about those things. But I do want to listen to Amos, even if he's hanging out with sheep herders. Like, I want to hear what's being said by God's people. Then the king of Assyria, verse 24, brought the people from Babylon, Kuthoth, Ava, and Hamath, from Seraphim, I don't know how to say that, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in the cities. So you're, this is what they're doing. They're taking people from the far reaches of the empire, and they're repopulating them. Then this happens. And it was so, at the beginning of their dwelling there, that they did not fear the Lord. Of course they didn't. They don't care who Yahweh is. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them. This, these are attack killer lions. 
coming in formation, which killed some of them. And so they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them. And indeed, they're killing them because they don't know the rituals of the God of the land. So really low-level theology. They don't know what they're talking about. They still think gods are attached to geographical land. They don't know what God they're talking about. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Send there one of the priests whom you brought from there, and let him go and dwell there, and let him teach them the rituals of the God of the land. Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel, and they taught them how they should fear the Lord. This is interesting because that relocated priest was not a Levite. This would have been one of Jeroboam's priests who has no idea what he's doing and has corrupted the worship for a very long time. So this is what you call the blind leading the blind. However, the lion killings stop. So a few thoughts on this. This record should tell us a few things about God. Number one, God doesn't need humans to establish his glory. He can move all the northern people out of there, and then the people that move in are going to recognize Yahweh. Number two, there's something special about the land. It's the land that God's concerned with here because he still promised that land to be an eternal kingdom. So God demands this of whoever is living there. Three, God doesn't let Assyria adopt this land without understanding who the king is in this land. So the, the overarching Assyrian god of Asher doesn't get to put Yahweh in his pantheon and he won't bow to Asher. So this is an interesting thing for them to understand how this works. For the Assyrian king to not send Asherite priests in to take control says that spiritually they realized they had no power whatsoever. They actually bring back one of these corrupted northern kingdom priests to try to get something right. And apparently they do. Apparently this stops the killings. Um, who is the priest? We don't even get the name of the priest, and I think that's because they're not that noteworthy. But I also think, wouldn't it have been weird, you get hauled off, walked across the empire, and then you get somebody knocking on your door saying, uh, we need you to go back and tell people about Yahweh. This is a nice second chance for that one priest that gets to go back and do it. I also think, and this is like a four, but it's a Sean four. I would have loved to see the lion attack. Like, this is the, like what would that have looked like? Spiritually obedient lions, like, on a mission. You know, they're just sitting around, hanging like cats do, you know, sitting on the rock, looking around. All of a sudden, they're like, what's that, God? Go kill people? And then the lions are like, let's go kill people. And so they start marching towards, and then they see from the right another pack of lions come. And then, and then you get this whole little hundreds of lions coming in. And then you're one of these Babylonians who's been transported across the country, worshiping your Babylonian gods. And then over the hillside, you see these lions come in. Of course, they're saying this is spiritual. This is a weird scene but a really cool scene too. And the lions had to really like this command from God. Like they don't often get to go attack humans and have a free for all on them. But I think the lions would have embraced this opportunity and they would have had a lot of fun with this, especially the big lions. Even the little baby lions would have been hanging along for the ride, you know, pretending like they're big lions. The rituals of the God of the land, the foreigners show more concern for Yahweh than the Israelites did. Let's not miss that point. More regard coming from these people coming from all these other countries. There's a reason why God eventually says, you know what? I'm done with the Mosaic system. I'm just going to go straight to the Gentiles, the Goy. 
And thank God he did that. Like we're all coming into God's presence because he said, I, I'm going to let people who want to worship me, worship me from anywhere. They're going to become lights on a hill. Verse 28, then one of the priests, this nameless single person, gets to come back and do it. And he tries to, he does. There's a remnant. And the priest doesn't teach that our God's a jealous God. He, he allows more gods in this northern kingdom. And so we see verse 29, that even this final opportunity for these Gentiles to come in and worship properly, they still don't do it. Verse 29, however, every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines on the high places, which the Samaritans had made every nation in the cities where they dwelt. The men of Babylon made Succoth Benoth. The men of Cuth made Nergal. The men of Hamath made Ashima. The Avonites made Nebaz and Tartak. The Serphorites burned their children in the fire to Adaramalek and Anamalek and the gods of the Seraphim. And so they feared the Lord, and from every class they appointed for themselves priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. They feared the Lord, yet served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. Yahweh just becomes, they see Yahweh as the God that needs to be paid homage to, so they pay him homage, and then they go do whatever they want to do. So a corrupted version of Judaism for sure and now we know why when we get to Jesus' time, they hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans weren't even Jewish, so they were practicing a version of Judaism that was corrupted, like two generations of corruption, and they worshipped all these other gods in addition to Yahweh. It was polytheistic. So the one good part about this is that in this part of the land, Asher wasn't the top god. Yahweh was. And even the Assyrians recognized this. So I think that's kind of cool. They feared the Lord, yet served their own gods. Here's another warning that we can learn from. The same thing can be said of a lot of people today. Same thing could have been said of me, I think, for a good 20 years of my life, maybe even 30. That I feared the Lord God, I honored God, but I really served other gods. And so you look at this, and they, this claim to fear God, but clearly living for themselves and living for the world becomes this kind of dual-mindedness. In response to this passage, if you know Charles Spurgeon, he's got a great quote. I just want to read right from Spurgeon on this. It is not worldly piety or pious worldliness. The current religion of England, they live among the godly people and God chastens them and they, for the, they therefore fear him, but not enough to give their hearts to him. They seek out a trimming teacher who is not too precise and plain spoken. And when they settle down comfortably to a mongrel faith, a half truth, a half error, and a mongrel worship, half dead form and half dead orthodoxy. And he's talking about England at the time. But I think you could apply that to America today. How dangerous this is. Yes, we believe God, that Jesus is Lord and he's king. And we maybe some of us still acknowledge that. But essentially... we. We, we're really in a world where many, many people that claim the name of Jesus still live for themselves. They do everything for themselves. They still claim ownership of everything. Essentially for them, as for our day and as in their day, God is done with that kind of worship in the northern kingdom. And there's an end to it. The story of Messiah and salvation will not continue with any of these ten tribes. It will continue with Judah. God's made his promise. He's going to keep it even though Ahaz right? He's still going to keep it because he made a promise to David and he's going to keep his promise. 
I love that God made us a promise too. And we know from the Old Testament that he will keep his promises. And I can put my faith in those promises that he will keep every promise he's made to us. And we have way more promises made to us about the second coming than they had about the first coming. To this day, verse 34, they continue practicing the former rituals. They do not fear the Lord. So wait a sec. It said they feared the Lord but practiced other gods. But then in verse 34, they don't fear the Lord anymore even. They don't even, there is no punishment immediately. So they just keep doing what they're doing. Nor do they follow their statues or their ordinances or the law and the commandment which the Lord had commanded to the children of Jacob whom he named Israel. So the initial lion fear turns into a fear of lions, maybe not a fear of God. I fear what God might do to me, but I don't fear it enough to stop doing what I'm doing. You know people like that? It says, to this day, it's going to endure till the New Testament. The only reason to follow God is fear. If that's your only reason to follow God, that's a thin reason to follow God. At some point, you can come into the faith through fear, like, I don't want to burn in hell. But at some point, that should be converted to love. Not only do I not want to burn a hell, I really love hanging out with God's people. I love the blessing God brings in my life. I love the clear-mindedness God gives me when I'm in his word every week. I love the effect this is having on my marriage, on my relationships. I love what God does in my life. It's beautiful, peaceful, wonderful, pure, holy, righteous, redeemed. And I love those things. That is going to have a lot more enduring effect than fear alone. But fear's a good start. If that's what it takes to get you in the kingdom, then we'll give you the fire and brimstone, get you in the kingdom, then teach you what love looks like. I'm okay with that too. The story of Messiah and salvation is going to keep going. So God allows this as he holds his own people more accountable than these Assyrians and Babylonians. Um, he holds people accountable based on the revelation they've had. So he allows this kind of new Samaritan nation to exist under Assyria, and he's, they pay him some respect because of the land they're sitting on, and that's about it. Verse 35, With whom the Lord had made a covenant and charged them, saying, You shall not fear other gods, nor bow down to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. But the Lord, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt with great power and an outstretched arm, him you shall fear... Him you shall worship, and him you shall offer sacrifice. So this is a paraphrased uh, passage. The quote that's being made here is right out of Deuteronomy 5. It's coming right out of the Ten Commandments. Verse 37. And the statutes, the ordinances, the law, and the commandment, that's Deuteronomy, Numbers, Leviticus, that's how we would say that, and the commandment which he wrote for you, you shall be careful to observe forever. You shall not fear other gods. Who is the writer writing verse 37 to? Ten tribes are gone. He's writing this when the southern kingdom has been hauled off to Babylon. He's writing this to the remaining Jewish people. This is why we call them Jews and not Israelis. Right? They're Jewish people because they come from the tribe of Judah. It's the only tribe left. And the Judah people, the Jews, are in Babylon. They've lost their land. And they're putting this book of kings together to assemble it to explain what happened. And part of the hope we get from kings is God's not done with us yet. He has a plan. And so this idea that they didn't follow the other gods that he wrote for you, he's connecting this to the readers of the day. And the commandment which he wrote for you, you shall be careful to observe forever. You shall not fear other gods. So while they're in Babylon, there's a purification that happens with the Jewish people. They don't struggle with idol worship ever again. When they come back from Babylon... We don't see the Jewish people. You don't see a bunch of idols with Jewish people and all over the world. 
They were dispersed with the Roman diaspora, and all over the world, the Jewish people have stuck to their traditions with allegiance. They're notable for this. They're the only people group on earth that have really maintained their traditions despite being immersed in other cultures for generations upon generations. They're stubborn that way. And part of what got them kind of as a culture to purify in that sense is this book and these passages. Don't go astray. Even when you're in Babylon, verse 38, and the covenant that I have made with you, you shall not forget. You shall not fear other gods. No matter where you're at, no matter how bad it looks, no matter what's going on, and no matter how much you don't like Nebuchadnezzar, don't fear what he has in front of you. But the Lord your God, shall you shall fear, and he will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. I wonder if Kings was written before or after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went through the fire. Like, are these verses that they were reading from the priests, and were they inspiring to them that it doesn't matter what happens, my God will protect me? You know, David and Daniel creates this school of devout people that are studying the word and learning the word in the middle of Babylon, and you've got amazing courage coming from God's people, modeled by these young men, these teenagers. Verse 39, but the Lord your God, you shall fear, and he will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. That quote, possibly from Leviticus 26. However, they did not obey, but they followed their former rituals. So these nations feared the Lord, yet served their carved images. Also their children and their children's children have continued doing as their fathers did even to this day. This is the end, the end of Israel. They're all done. So we get commentary added at the very end, verses 37 here through 41. And the writers are kind of commenting on all the history they just given. And the main idea, just the walk away tonight is, they left God and God let them leave. And it's not necessarily that God went on the attack here. It's that he basically said, you can have what you want. You don't want me? Good luck with the world. So we can and should walk away from this final judgment and note a few things. One, God is, it, it's not about being partially, partially gods. It's about being entirely gods. And I think we've seen two, three times in this chapter where they, they've served God, they feared God, they did God kind of things, but they continued to worship other things in their life. Like I'll pay my dues on Sunday, but I'm really going to live for myself all week. And I'll go up to the high places and I'll go party here and I'll go do this there. But there's not a purity in that intention. There's no kinda that God's interested in. He wants all of us. That's really extreme. Well, it's what the chapter's talking about. God's patient. We should note that. Like he's been patient with these folks. 200 years of putting up with this nonsense, this whoredom that they've done. Again, I can't wait to get to Hosea. And God does exactly what he says he will. He's patient, but he will do what he says he will do. Well, it's been 2,000 years. When's Jesus coming back? When God wants to come back, he will come back. He doesn't tell us when, but he does tell us he will. And so to doubt that is to doubt the power of God, the sovereignty of God, and the trustworthiness of God. He's coming back. I think he's coming back soon. I don't know about you. The delaying isn't that God's lazy or busy. The delaying is that God has mercy and he wants repentance. He wants as many people as possible to choose to follow him. So as these warnings keep coming, as we live in times where those warnings keep coming, like every day in the news cycle, we see another thing and another thing that looks a lot like prophecy. 
Those warnings are there so that the people of God can be true to God in those times and to stand out in that sense. Number three, fearing the Lord is not the same thing as serving the Lord. They're different things. You can acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, but if you don't serve him, it's not the same thing. Don't just believe in Jesus intellectually. Actually believe in your heart and have it come through in your actions. And we're going to see that all through the New Testament. But here in the Old Testament, we just get a great example of this is the summary judgment, the court case that God has against these people and the judgment that God enacted on them because the time was up for them. And that should tell us something about the nature of God. He'll give us warnings. He'll wait patiently. But there is an end to that patience. And we should know that it's there. That said, that's kind of a a harsh message in that sense. And I'm just going to leave it as a harsh message. Usually I like, hey, but there's good news too. But I'm going to end chapter 17 tonight. And it's like, you know what? Deal with it. Let that just hit you in the face and, and sit on it all week. And then next week we'll come back to Hezekiah, which is this shining light of hope in the southern kingdom. That's a result of what just happened to the northern kingdom, I think. that there, We're going to see a new king that comes up that's as close as we're going to get to David since David. And as close as we're going to get to Messiah until we hit Messiah. Like, Hezekiah is an amazing king. If you don't know Hezekiah's story, I think you're in for a treat the next few weeks. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the warnings. Lord, we know that we're not perfect. Uh, Lord, every one of us is working this out in our life in day to day. And Lord, we appreciate your mercy and your patience with us. We appreciate that our hearts have gone astray. Our hearts do easily get distracted. And Lord, we often live for things that aren't you. And Lord, I just pray that you continue to train us and coach us. Lord, discipline us if you need to. We're, We're inviting it. Because I'd rather lose things. I'd rather go through struggles. I'd rather have trials than to lose your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. Lord, we want to serve you with our hearts. Help us to not mess around with that, but to be serious about what we're doing and how we're doing it. Lord, may our life show the glory, the goodness, and the purity of God. And may other people see us and see people that are doing their darndest to be holy because you're holy. Lord, help us to not do any of that out of obligation. Help fear to be something that doesn't motivate us for long. Help us to do it because we love you. We've seen that your law is good and we delight in every precept and we read it word upon word, verse upon verse, because we love you and we, we know that you are good. And Lord, if there's anything to save us in this world, it's you. So we turn our eyes to you and we take our eyes off the world. And Lord, I just pray that that's a, a message that has hope in it all by itself. So, Lord, we accept that you are a a holy God that will not tolerate corruption forever. And, Lord, we know that about you, and we know that there is a judgment coming. So I pray that every heart in this room, Lord, turns to you tonight, this week, next month, next year, the rest of our lives, day by day, in Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.